Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. By the 33rd chapter of the book of Genesis, Jacob has already been renamed Israel due to his behavior against God and man. Interestingly, though, the text still refers to him as Jacob. This is unique so far. Remember that earlier in the story, Abram was renamed to Abraham, but the text consistently went with the latter name, and the earlier name was more or less forgotten about. Not so with Jacob. So what's going on with the text? Let's hear the story as we continue the saga of Jacob, the patriarch of Israel. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. After he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. In this first section, we get a repeat of Jacob's frankly over-the-top preparation to meet his brother. Instead of trusting in God's protection, he decides to divide his camp, which foreshadows the division of the two kingdoms bearing his name later on in the story. He also comically begins to prostrate on the ground seven times, as if that will save him in the event that Esau attacks violently against him. He's like Cain, who has no problem slaying his brother out of jealousy, but is scared to death that someone might take advantage of his weakness, as he took advantage of Abel's. This becomes even more comical when we read on and realize that not only was Esau's reaction to Jacob nonviolent, it was the tenderest form of brotherly affection possible, despite the wrong that Jacob did to him. Yeah, it mirrors the end of chapter 32. Before Jacob wrestles with the man in the wilderness, he sends his family ahead of him, staying behind himself. However, here he goes before them. It seems he caught up with them after his wrestling match, and now that he has them together again, he arranges them in such a way that those family members he finds most precious will be preserved in the event of an attack. His favorite wife and favorite son are set in the rear, which plays into that imagery of a battle. Those soldiers on the rear lines are most likely to survive. And yeah, it is humorous to see Jacob at his lowest, literally. He prostrates himself begging for mercy like a coward. Every other tense situation he has been in, he was able to talk himself out of, or he abused his relationship with Yahweh for the sake of protecting himself. The difference here is that he is SOL, so he shows his true colors. He is not the strong, rash, manly man, hero, that he acted as in previous chapters. He is afraid of death, like every human, and he is willing to do whatever it takes to save his own behind. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. 
Then the servants drew near, and they and their children bowed down. Likewise, Leah and her children drew near and bowed down. And at last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. I have found favor in your sight. Then accept my presence from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Finally, Esau shows Jacob the mercy and forgiveness Jacob was unable to show his brother in the first place. This showcase of brotherly mercy will be repeated in a major way with the story of Joseph and his brothers, but we'll get to that later. Notice Jacob's embellishment of his own story in verse 5, saying that what he has is a gift from God. Now we know that this isn't entirely true because everything Jacob has was achieved by him taking advantage of those around him, particularly, of course, of Laban. This section of scripture is like a test by the authors to see if we've been paying attention. The insertion of Jacob is like a curveball. Never before have we had a character so routinely spout falsehoods to this degree. We need to understand this so we too don't fall victim to what Jacob is saying and believe that he is the hero of the story. The text is testing us to see whether we have equipped ourselves enough to see through Jacob's lies. Yeah, the authors are expecting the audience to put in the work and not just passively hear the story. And there are so many little clues scattered throughout that we should not trust Jacob or the declarations he makes. Like Blaze said in the intro to this episode, after Jacob is renamed to Israel in the scene with the random man in the wilderness, he celebrates because he thinks that he just faced God, and he names the place of that wrestling match, Piniel, which is the face of God. And if it was truly God who Jacob faced in that wrestling match, then that would make Jacob's name change to Israel legit. However, the text continues to refer to Jacob as Jacob, not Israel. Especially interesting and relevant to that previous scene is Jacob's words to Esau in verse 10. He tells Esau, For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. This is yet another subtle clue that Jacob throws his words around willy-nilly, thus delegitimizing the godly status he gave his wrestling opponent in chapter 32. And I think there are plenty of details in this account uh, with between Jacob and Esau that shine a light on the fact that the wrestling match in the previous chapter was foreshadowing this scene with Esau and that it wasn't this special institution of Jacob's godly status, but it was simply presenting Jacob with an opportunity to show mercy the same way that his brother was about to show him mercy. And what did he do? He wrestled with this random man. And then in the next scene where he actually does meet his brother, we have the imagery that I just discussed, as well as the imagery that in verse 4. It says, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. So, of course, Esau is embracing Jacob like a brother he hasn't seen for 20 plus years. But the imagery that we're given in the story is that of uh, a full body embrace. And especially that word, uh, Esau fell on Jacob's neck and kissed him. That's the Hebrew word nafal and often has a militaristic connotation. 
and it denotes the falling uh, of a wounded soldier. So it's connected even more so to that image of wrestling. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. Jacob's behavior here is extremely telling. For one, he makes an excuse not to journey with Esau because he doesn't want to exhaust his livestock. But what we see in verse 17 is that he builds a house. This is incredibly problematic for obvious reasons. It's one thing to pitch a tent as a shepherd would do. Shepherds put tents up so they have somewhere to sleep at night, but the point is, is that it's portable. They are constantly on the move, crossing as Eberim. But to build a house is to introduce permanence. Jacob is now a city man, and the shepherd business is foreign to him. We see the glaring issue with this when we hear about his son's dealings with the neighboring Shechemites. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate because we get the sense of how adamant Esau is uh, about helping Jacob. He wants to stay just ahead of Jacob, but Jacob tells him to go ahead way in the front and Jacob will catch up, which he doesn't. Then Esau insists on leaving some of his men to assist Jacob and Jacob again refuses. He was afraid of Esau's anger, but now that Esau is merciful and hospitable, Jacob is worried about owing him anything, or perhaps he's worried about Esau changing his mind and making a claim to Jacob's wealth. Whatever the case, Jacob is continuing that avoidant, slick behavior. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. In verse 18, the ESV says that Jacob came safely to Shechem, but the original Hebrew is Salam, which, of course, has the connotation of peace. More specifically, he came there without any conflict, which is a first for him. I point this out because to translate it as safely instead of peacefully misses the point of what the authors are saying. It should sound striking to the ears that he has some sort of movement without trying to take advantage of those around him. Jacob is finally in Canaan once again and purchases land from the sons of Hamor. Hamor comes from the root that has the meaning to foam or to ferment or to trouble, so it definitely sets the mood for what occurs later. Finally, he pitches a tent in Shechem, which is redundant since he already has a house in Sukkoth. He also builds an altar, again by his own volition. God never commanded him to do any of this. And... It's funny that God never commanded him to do any of this because he names the altar the God of the gods of Israel, El Elohe Israel. We haven't heard the mention of that name Israel in this entire chapter up until this point. The text is actively working to deny Jacob as Israel. It is actively working to delegitimize that title that Jacob has claimed was given to him by God. 
but the text has put in subtle clues, again, for us as the audience to glean otherwise from the story. So all throughout this chapter, the authors have denied Jacob being Israel, and the first time we hear that name again is in the very last verse of this chapter where Jacob creates an altar and dedicates it to the God of the gods of himself, Israel. It's really important that we understand the illegitimacy of Jacob's claim to this name because of what the name means. It's somebody who has striven, who has wrestled, who has contended with God, and of course the name itself calls to mind the event where Jacob did that, you know, from his own purview, and was successful at defeating God in a wrestling match. And if we've been paying attention to the scriptural story, we know that that is non-functional, that's impractical, it doesn't work, it is impossible. We have to hear the text, how it presents itself, with all of these details. And on this idea of Jacob taking matters into his own hands, it reminds me about when I was younger. It always struck me when I heard adults speak about the concept of integrity. The specific metaphor I remember, for whatever reason, was if there was no one around you, and you were in the middle of nowhere driving down a secluded highway, would you drive the speed limit, or would you drive really, really fast, you know, beyond the speed limit, because nobody's around to see you? I think it was a police officer who offered this metaphor to my elementary class, so it was very in character for him. But the moral of the teaching very much interested me. You know, if you're presented with no conflict, how do you behave? If you were a lonely man with power and responsibility, but you know that you could get away with anything, what would you do? AKA, you know, if you were a politician. Do you take care of those less fortunate, or do you take advantage of people simply because you can and you know there won't be consequences? I think throughout Jacob's story, we have been seeing him gravitate toward the latter, being condemned for such behavior by the stranger who renamed him Israel, only for Jacob to take that sarcastic name as a trophy of his success. I'm excited for us to continue with Jacob's story and see where all of this storytelling groundwork is taking us. We will see you all next week. Peace be with you in your labors and mercy in your hardships. Goodbye. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.